Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 22. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are excited to be back after a very exciting week. If you're at Disney World right now, a really exciting week to you. Congratulations to all of you who crushed Marathon Weekend. Yes, congrats, runners. And uh, believe me, I wish that I was there with you guys, specifically with my ra- uh, with my running team, the WDW Radio running team. I love you all. I hope you guys had a great weekend. I know uh, so many people that are down there right now. And you've gone with me. Are there anything better than these run events? I don't run unless there's a bear chasing me. But these running events are so much fun. They're so exciting. And really, Disney does a great job with them. Like, I've never had a problem being able to get to you through crowds and crowds of people. It's so organized. Uh, the signage is great. I've never had a problem finding you after a run. Yeah, you you would have, uh, you know, I've I've gone to some races um, where it's easier to pick out one of the spots off of these dogs that we're going to talk about in this film <laughs> than it is to find your family member or your friend. They just they it, it it amazes me that they just they 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 have everything organized so well because you're talking. 13, 14,000 people running these races versus I've run races with 4,000 people that are not nearly well uh, organized at all. (laughs) To touch on that, there was a race that Sean did once where they sent the kiddos out first to do their run and then the adults were supposed to go after. And to be fair, it was so disorganized, Sean actually ran with the kiddos. It was my first race. That was my first race ever. Sure. Sure, that's what it was. No, it was. It was literally my first race, and we got there, and the guy saw me, and he was like, the gun's going off. And I'm like, I thought I had an hour. He's like, no, get in line. And I ran. And it ended up being the the one-mile run for fun with children. (laughs) Trust me, nobody had more fun than me that day. But the point is... That was really disorganized. Disney is not. I've never had a problem getting close to the finish line to see you cross and to get like your money shot picture of you running across the line and then coming to meet up with you afterwards. I had another race here on Long Island in September, which if you're not from Long Island, you you know, August and September are bee season. And they didn't, it was a beach run and they didn't empty the garbages from the night before. So put aside the fact that it stunk. Right. there were nothing but bees swarming the trash cans right by the starting gate. So when the gun went off, we ran for our lives. There had to be a thousand bees. I remember that. And, I couldn't even say. And there were maybe only 500 runners. There weren't. You're talking one. I mean, it just. I could understand a thousand people, you know, 1,000 people, you sort of blend and get away, but. No, there were just there were bees everywhere. It was terrible. Yeah, no, it was it like was a awful. scene out of Jurassic Park when that gun went off. Well, congrats again, Disney runners, and I hope you all celebrate with a cookie num num coming to MGM. Yes, absolutely. I'm so excited about that. Go get yourself one. You deserve it. 
if you guys haven't heard me talk about the Cookie Num Num, go back and listen to our review of Disneyland and our trip to the Disney studio. I am so excited that the Cookie Num Num is coming. I know. I can't believe it. Um, As if we're not already wishing the year away so we can get to Florida. Yeah, right. Um, all right. Well, why don't we just get right into it? Um, 101 Dalmatians. This is a Disney classic animated film. Uh, this was one that I grew up on. I th- This was a movie that I'd say I wore out the VHS for the Jungle Book. I'd say that this was a close third. I'm not going to say second. I think we pro- Cinderella was probably a second. This, I'd say, is, is number three. I remember watching it a lot as a kid. I remember my brother was really, really into it. And that's not to say that I wasn't. I do love this movie. But um, he was the one who always wanted to watch it. Like, you know, when you're deciding, you know, when your parents give you a choice when you're fighting over the VCR, uh, this was like always his pick. Interesting. Um, I think at this point we just have to jump right into it. Sure. So this is another Disney classic uh, based off a book. Uh, The 101 Dalmatians book was written by Dodie Smith. Um, and it was a novel that was inspired by her own experience that was similar to the film. Yes. Not in the sense of a crazy lady coming to make a coat out of her pet, um, <laughs> but she did have Dalmatians. Uh, they gave birth to a litter of 15 puppies, one of which was stillborn, and thankfully her husband was able to revive. Um So in the film version, we open on Roger and Pongo's bachelor pad, where Roger, a musician, is working on his latest composition. We learn that he is bored with the single lifestyle and is seeking some structure in the form of female companionship, and he realizes that it is up to him to find it. Looking out the window, he spots a pretty Dalmatian and her owner, who Pongo thinks will be suitable for Roger, so he arranges a meeting in the park. It's love at first sight for both pets and owners, and Roger and Anita get married, and Pongo and Purdy start a family. Upon learning of Perdita's pregnancy, Anita's former schoolmate, Cruella DeVille, arrives at their home demanding puppies, which won't arrive for another few weeks. When they finally do, Perdita gives birth to 15 puppies, one of which is stillborn, and Roger is able to revive him. The family does not get to celebrate for long because Cruella is back and ready to purchase the puppies to make a fur coat. Roger stands up to her and says that the puppies are not for sale, but this is unfortunately not the last we hear from her. While Roger and Anita take Pongo and Purdy out for an evening stroll, Cruella's henchmen, Horace and Jasper, disguised as electricians, invade their home and kidnap the puppies. Roger and Anita report the dog napping to the police, and it is all over the newspapers, but Pongo and Purdy aren't willing to wait and send word through the Twilight Bark, a network of dogs who pass information along, and they are able to locate the puppies at the DeVille Mansion. Pongo and Purdy set off to save their pups, and in the meantime, a rescue mission is established by the Colonel, Captain, and Sergeant Tibbs, who discover that the Pongo's children are 15 out of 99 who have been stolen to be turned into coats. Sergeant Tibbs busts the puppies out while Pongo and Purdy handle Horace and Jasper. The Pongos lead the puppy through horrible weather conditions back to London and are helped along their journey by a collie and a Labrador who find them a ride on a moving van back to the city. Cruella manages to track the dogs down and attempts to run the moving van off the road, but is foiled by Horace and Jasper, who crash into her car. The Pongos and puppies return safely to Roger and Anita, who are overjoyed and decide to buy a bigger house in the country for all 101 Dalmatians with the money earned from Roger's hit song, Cruella de Vil. And that, my friends, is how you do a Disney movie without killing a parent. Yes! <laughs> this, this is one of the few, actually. 
we're going to have to take a closer look at this, but it might be the only one. Certainly not Bambi. Mother, mother, mother. <laughs> I, I had to throw it to you. <laughs> we just at talked least... <laughs> about this with Panda last week. I know. It's almost every episode. It, it kind of has turned into it. You're um, in your own Disney statistic, Sean. It is true. Um, yeah, this movie... Um, you know, off the top of my head, I don't really, I can't really think of one that doesn't have an orphaned uh, main character or a film where we don't see. Mary Poppins. But that's not animated, so it doesn't even count. But that's off the top of my head. Yeah. That's true. But I, we're talking about animated films. I can't really think of one. Not not this quickly. Yeah, no. I'd say this is this is one of few. If, if it's we do, nothing... we'll put it up on social media. But listeners, if if you're tuning in right now and uh, and you got something, by all means, let us hear it. Yeah, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at Monoreal Radio. To say the least, this is one of very few. Um, I want to start at the beginning because obviously that makes the most sense. Um, but I love how the movie starts with a narration that. If you haven't seen this movie before, you assume it's Roger. Mm -hmm. And because he's talking about his pet, it turns out that it's Pongo talking about Roger, the human, as his pet. I think that it's brilliant, and I just love the comedy there. I love the flip. It's very unpredictable in that it starts the movie off this way. Um, but I like that it not only establishes the story, but Pongo establishes himself as Roger's t caretaker. Because... When I'm saying bachelor lifestyle, I mean, Roger doesn't even really know what time of day it is. Like, Pongo has to tell him, okay, it's time to go for a walk. Yeah. yeah usually, um, and I think, listen, if you own a dog, we own one. Uh, you guys have heard him on the show before. I think we all... <laughs> <laughs> I think... Sounds, sorry, that sounds so funny, but, like, it's true. We all wonder, like, what is the inner monologue of your pet? And I thought that... This movie did such an interesting twist of it because I think up to this point, I think a lot of these films in the past had been very literal where the human was the owner or the master. I just, I can't get past, I've never been able to shake the notion that a pet might look at us as a pet. It's very clever, but especially because of how they're portraying Roger as this musician who, you know, he's not really tidying up after himself. And like I said, he doesn't really know what time of day it is. He's just completely absorbed in his work. You know, he's he's a creative type. So I can kind of see where he's getting lost in his music. But, you know, the way that they set this up where essentially Pongo is like my biological clock is ticking here. So it's <laughs> up to me to find a female to kind of get everything in order. Yes, he's he's the Marissa Tomei of dogs. Um, <laughs> speaking of dogs, um, the animation in this movie, this goes without saying. The animation, very impressive, but mo more specifically, the dog anatomy. Yeah. When he's just sitting there in that window lounging, I mean, you can tell that they clearly did some studying. Yeah, it's... It's so lifelike, for a lack of a better term. Now, we should point out that when we did our review of the live-action Jungle Book back on episode number three, um, the dog, ours, um, walked up to the television, which we've not really seen him do very often when the characters were on screen, at least the animals, because they're CGI, they look very lifelike. What amazed me is that he did the same thing 
when we watched this movie, which I've never seen him done with anim, which I've never seen him do with animation, I should say. Um, but their movements and their mannerisms, more specifically, just their their all around mannerisms, are so on the nose. Particularly in the very beginning, and this is probably one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie, is where there's this parade of dogs that look like their owners. I think that that's so clever. And I feel like that's where most of the humor in this film comes from, is that type of animation. Um, I think it's funny to begin with when dogs look like their owners. And you know what I'm talking about. Like, there are people who kind of look like their dogs. Yeah. Um, But the standout to me in this scene was Walt went up to the television and he's tracking them along on the screen. And then as they walk out of frame, he goes to the right of the television off screen as if he's expecting to see that it was the funniest thing ever. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was really good. You had to be there. But unfortunately, we were the only ones that were. <laughs> I know. Now I totally sound like one of those dog moms. No, but it's, it, but it's so true. And, and to, to touch on what you said before about um, it's not the first time people have joked about dogs and owners looking alike, but they did it really well in this movie because it wasn't just, usually you see it like in facial structure, almost like a caricature. Mm -hmm. What this movie did that was really um, intelligent was uh, it wasn't so much the facial structure so much as it was body language and more specifically outfit. Um, They were able to take somebody's, you know, pea coat and their and their pants mm-hmm. and they matched it up to the coat of the dog just I, I thought that it was really ingenious and very tongue-in-cheek and i think it was sort of a hallmark of that of of those early disney animators right because they they weren't just drawn to look like their pets but like as pongo's narrating it's also they're talking about like class and uh you know their jobs and their age yeah through all of these people walking by it was very very clever um on the surface before you do a ton of research i remember thinking that some of the backgrounds and some of the settings Mm. specifically have very rough edges where the colors sort of bled over the lines and when you compare that to a lot of those early Disney animated classics where attention to detail was such a big deal for them. This almost comes off as very jarring, but as it turns out, there's a reason for all of this. Yeah. Aesthetically, this looks like nothing we've ever seen from a Disney film before. Um, What's interesting is that by this point, Walt has the parks going on and he's involved in television. So, this was probably one of his most hands-off films. Um, so Bill Pete adapted the screenplay and kind of oversaw the story throughout the film. Uh, and Ken Anderson did the backgrounds. And what it looks like, you know, this is a complete departure from the multiplane camera, which we've right. talked about time and time again, which is made, uh, it, the, it serves the purpose of giving depth to the film and, you know, creating that foreground, middle ground and background. Um, this just kind of looks like one flat layer and it's drawn in force perspective, but the art is more, it's more of the time and it's more focused on 
abstract shapes and colors to form the backgrounds, to form the sets, as opposed to being really, really detailed. Right. This was this was contemporary. This was a contemporary art form for a contemporary period. You're talking the early 1960s. Very telling of the time, but it's kind of what the audience was looking for. It does kind of have like that London mod look. Yeah. And I think that it was one of the first times that you sort of saw Disney trying to keep up with a trend. Right. Rather than set their own pace. Right. Um, so, it, but it is, it is a beautiful film. Visually, it's, it's wonderful. And I think that this movie moving forward most certainly set the table for future Disney films. Absolutely. Um, I mean, when you're talking about it, the, the title of the film itself, obviously, 101 Dalmatians. That's a huge undertaking. And... The fact that they're animating this film, I can only imagine what the pitch was like. Like, you're going to draw 101 puppies, and not only that, but, like, you're going to make them move and do several cells for each, you know, second of film. It, it's absolutely absurd. Um, so what they do here, um, Disney started incorporating the Xerox method into this film, Um which I guess to the pure animation is kind of cheating a little bit, but like really how else are you going to pull off something like this? Right. To, to make a tail wag and then to do that 101 times, come on, give me a break. Um, so actually, uh, Ub Iwerks uh, gave Disney the idea to start using the, uh, the Xerox method and Ub had worked with Disney on Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Uh, and then they kind of, parted ways but they got back together later right on after their some of those early mickey mouse cartoons right um so basically what they do with the xerox method is is kind of like your regular office copy machine and the animators you know they draw their sketch and they go to run it off but they do it to a statically charged plate and then that is transferred onto the cell and what you're eliminating is the ink stage so basically what happens in predating this film is that the animators would do their sketch they would animate the character and in the inking department they would trace over on the cell all of the hard lines so it's basically cleaning it up um you know when the animators do their original sketch they have those construction lines so i'm sure if you've seen any kind of animation uh the animators start with like a, a cross as a reference of where to place the eyes, nose, and mouth on a face, and then they'll draw a circle around it to give it that face, and that way they know where to put everything. Um, they don't just erase those lines. The ink department just doesn't transfer them over to the cell. They know what thick lines or what hard lines are the ones that are supposed to be used, and then they would paint it, and then it, or they would ink it, and then it goes over to the paint department. So what the Xerox did was eliminate that process altogether. And you basically had the animators work going straight from their pen, pencil and paper to the screen because it wasn't being traced over. It was painted, but not inked. Right. And you start to see those little construction lines pop up every few frames in quite a few of these movies moving forward. I think you see them in the Jungle Book because they took their technology that they use for 101 Dalmatians 
and they transferred it to future projects because it ended up being more cost effective. Animation is a very expensive, you know, medium. Um, unfortunately, it did leave some people out of jobs because they got rid of the inking department. But for those animators, it was the first time, this movie specifically, the first time they saw their actual hand-drawn work show up on the screen. Right. And you did have people because they weren't used to going straight to the screen. They did, you know, as you say, you can see some of the construction lines, but it still did have to be cleaned up. Right. So you actually had people that were like erasing strokes of some of the nine old men, which I can't imagine how nerve wracking that must have been. Um, But I think it's kind of cool. And I think it almost lends itself to the film because... I can see where people would say that maybe this looks a little sloppy. Like you said, stylistically, in the background, there were colors that were bleeding over lines. And now you're talking about the background kind of drifting out of the lines. And now we're talking about uh, the construction lines being left in. A lot of people may call that sloppiness, but I, I think all of that is style in this case. Right. And in the case of the backgrounds, really what they were doing was they had an artist that had like, it was his signature was that he did these sort of abstract drawings using colors and shapes, but making them look very flat. That's why you see the colors bleed over the lines because they did this abstract art and then they they drew in the detail after the fact. You can see it the most, I think, maybe not so much in the neighborhood settings or the countryside, but definitely in Roger and Anita's home. Oh, yeah. Like on the wall, the pictures are just kind of circles and squares. Like, you know, they're supposed to be picture frames, but there's really no detail to them whatsoever. Yeah, I think that unless you know, and now you do, um, the technical significance and the technical breakthroughs and achievements and what they did differently for this film, I I think that this movie tends to be overlooked in terms of the impact it had not only on Disney animation, but in animation as a whole moving forward, especially with this Xerox process. Right. Um, This movie... It, it doesn't have um, an awful lot of music in it, which is the other thing. Up to this point in time, most of what you have seen is musicals, or at least fairy tales that they have turned into musicals. This has one or two songs, three if you count the Canine Crunchy song, which is really just the jingle on a television ad. Count it. But so much of this is so different from what they had seen there's no prince there's no princess this was not a fairy tale it is by all means not a musical the irony being that roger's vocation is a songwriter right and they don't play into that right at all i mean like yes of course they have the jingle and the song that he writes for cruella Deville, but it's not uh they don't play into it into the sense of like something happens and he's like oh this is an inspiration for a song and then he runs off to the piano not yeah. at all he plays the piano like three times which if if they did that i feel like it would have been hokey and cheesy I, I sort of like that they stayed away from that yeah they made a lot of really smart choices when it comes to the story like for example going back to the beginning when roger and anita meet 
you know, you're talking about how Pongo establishes himself really as, you know, thinking that Roger is his pet. He sees Purdy, he's obviously attracted to her, and he thinks that Anita would be suitable for Roger. So he moves the time forward on a clock and he makes Roger think that they're late for their afternoon walk. And I love this whole scene because it, even though it's orchestrated by Pongo, their meet cute happens so naturally. Like I could see that happening. Dog owners will know. I mean, maybe if you don't have a smaller dog, but our dog is 53 pounds of pure muscle and I can barely hold my ground while walking him. So the way that Pongo kind of ties them together with his leash and forces them to interact, that's brilliant to me. Like he's, you know, masterminded this whole situation and he's pulling all the strings, but to somebody that's watching this all happen and watching them fall into the pond, it's completely plausible. Yeah, without question. Um, What... I have to laugh at, and I have kind of questioned this since I've seen the movie for the first time and and up to this point in my life, and I've been watching this movie for nearly 30 years. We know that Cruella and Anita are school friends, but why? Yeah, like, why would you be friends with this person? Why would you be friends with Cruella DeVille? First off, forget, put aside the fact that her name is Cruel Devil, okay? (laughs) Let's, Let's pretend that doesn't exist. She's eccentric. She looks like the Crypt Keeper in fur, but there's nothing about her that's redeeming or that would create a form of trust. Like there's there's nothing about her redeeming to the point where you believe that this is a trustworthy human being. I mean, I kind of get it in the sense that like there were some people in college that like you're kind of forced to interact with. Like you have the same course load, you kind of get forced into a group project with them and maybe you have them on Facebook because they were an acquaintance and you just didn't have the heart to unfriend them. So in that context, I get where those people have kind of like clung to your life later on, even though you don't see them anymore. But this was the 60s. They didn't have Facebook back then. So, yeah, how does Cruella know where Roger and Anita live? How do they know that they have a puppy and that they are expecting when seemingly she doesn't really live near them? Right. And how does she enter their home while Purdy is giving birth like, was the door not locked? All of a sudden, she's just there in the kitchen. Nobody heard her come in. There, There's a lot about this, and we'll talk about it as we further dissect the script, but there's a lot about her that's unnerving and unsettling, and really, it seems like Roger was the only one that picked up on it, but why? I know they say opposites attract, but you couldn't get any more different than Anita and Cruella. But Cruella's a bully. And Anita is a nice person. You can see where like she's almost kind of a pushover. So I can understand where if they were in school together, she was probably like compelled to be nice to this person. Right. But speaking of her showing up at the door, can we circle back to her first entrance on the screen? Sure. O-M-G. Okay. We know I love my villains, but 
Cruella is one of my faves. And you know it when all you see is her silhouette. And Nanny does not want to open this door. But you know something is coming. Right. It's brilliant. And she walks in, like I said, looking like the Crypt Keeper in fur. <laughs> and she's smoking her cigarette with the green smoke on it. She, without question, and I don't think this is spoiling anything, because I think you would be hard-pressed to find anybody that disagrees with us. Um, top five Disney villain of all time. Yeah. I think she has to be. I mean, for me, it's probably Ursula, Scar, and then a toss-up between her and Hook. And I go back and forth. I love her, and I love her eccentricities but what stops me is because she's I mean I've said this about the evil queen in Snow White is that she's probably the most heartless because she wants Snow White's heart and there's really no rhyme or reason it's just that she's jealous of her beauty and I I was like that's psychotic to me like you have a screw loose lady um but so does Corella. she's probably got an even worse motive that she wants to kill poor innocent puppies and like I wear them and, and wear them. Wear them. Like, how do you look the thing in the face and then, like, no, or, or wear that, knowing that at one point it was looking you in the face? I mean, granted, she wasn't going to do the dirty work, but, like, I don't know. I mean, I've been completely changed by having a dog, and I can't even fathom anybody would want to do this, but that's probably the worst motive of yeah. any villain. Can I just say, the dog is sort of playing in, in the room right yes, now. Yes, I'm as, saying as this. this. As there is a toy that has been ripped to shreds that I'm going to have to vacuum up. But you didn't see because he was behind you. When you said, and wear them, he literally stopped in his <laughs> tracks and turned and stared at you. Like, even he can't believe it. <laughs> um, no, it's true, though. I mean, she's she's completely evil. She's totally, totally diabolical. And I think they said they can get a half a dozen coats out of the 99 puppies that she's lined up for an execution i mean don't get me wrong it's it's a it's a disney movie it's a family film but the subject matter of this movie is very heavy yeah and i don't even think that she wants to make all these coats to sell them like there's a profit in it for her i think she wants to wear every single one right because she's obsessed with the spots and you see that because when she when she does let herself in, she's like, oh, it's a white rat. And they have to explain, well, they're going to get their spots in a couple of weeks. And she's like, all right, I'll cut you the check right now. Yeah. Okay. That's that's kind of a little bit of a fault with this movie. Because how do you know so much about the dogs that you want to turn into coats and you don't know that their spots develop? That's well, kind of a weak point. Well, I think the thing is, she's... It's not that she's unintelligent. She's just very simple-minded. She comes off as the type of person that would see a car in a lot and say, I want that car. Buy it, take it to the gas station, and then seize the engine because she put regular unleaded gasoline in it, not realizing that it's a diesel. You know, she just saw what she wanted, and she got tunnel vision, and she didn't care about anything else, and she gets what she wants. That's the other thing. It's very clear that she's never been told no in her life. And she's used to throwing her money at this. 100%. Yeah. We don't know what she does for a living. We don't know where she has this money. But we know that she's going to get what she wants. Um, talking about the subject matter, um, in the end, the puppy lives. 
but you do get exposed to the notion that a puppy can be born stillborn. Yeah, and I was surprised that they didn't cut away from it. Um, that whole scene, first of all, is brilliantly done. Um, that's always one of the standout points to me because when they're waiting on the delivery, the way that Pongo just kind of like places his paw on Roger's knee or the way that he's looking at him and then his facial expressions when the puppies are born, uh, it always just seems so realistic to me. And then now, of course, that I've done further research, it was Ollie Johnson that animated all of these. Of course. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes all the sense in the world. Why? It's perfect. Um, but yeah, I was surprised that they kind of let that play out and they didn't cut away or just like leave Lucky in the blanket. They actually, you know, show him before Roger starts reviving him. Yeah, and I, I think... This was a movie, I believe, released in 1961. Um, I think that you had a audience that was a little, a lot, was a lot less sensitive to things like that than people are now. It's not to say that it's wrong. It's just that I think today's modern audiences tend to be more sheltered, without question. And I think they tend to be much more sympathetic to situations like this. But I appreciate the fact that movies like this exist and that they don't cut away from things like that because while it's still a film for, ch for families, more specifically for children, we've talked on this show before in the past about how Disney was never afraid to teach children the ways of the real world and mm -hmm. teach them a lesson. And this is one of those things where it turned out happy in the end, but whether you want to admit it or not or believe it or not, unfortunately... There are a lot of scenarios where it doesn't turn out quite as well. And they're not afraid to pretend that those scenarios don't exist. Right. And I I think that sometimes now y the, the modern audiences, I, I think in a way, are almost cheated out of that opportunity of, of seeing how the real world really is. No, I think that's a fair point. And... That's where this movie really does start to transition because, you know, once they've turned Cruella away and they said, you're not getting the puppies, obviously she doesn't listen and she sends her henchmen in to do the dirty work. But this is where you start to see a shift in the film. Roger and Anita have reported the dog napping and it's all over the papers. You see it everywhere. And as their pets, Pongo and Purdy have kind of let them handle everything and let them you know, do the legal end of this. But I love how the shift happens because they're being obedient, but now they're parents. So they decide to take matters into their own hands. And what's interesting is they go and they run off to save their puppies, but now Roger and Anita think that they've run away. If you're looking at it in terms of now my pet is gone. Right. Um, I want to touch upon the Scotland Yard thing for just a moment here. Um, there is a throwaway line from Anita that says that they questioned Cruella, uh, Cruella and they've moved on from her because Roger is so convinced that she did it. But of course, it's like one of my notes here is how do they not know right away it was her? I mean, she literally says, you idiots, you're going to pay for this. You're going to be sorry and then leaves. Right. But there is another throwaway line, I believe, that 
they've questioned her, but Roger doesn't believe that for a second. Right. He believes that she's calling with a confession. Right. Well, I mean, she, she all but did. I mean, she sort of confessed to it before she even did it when she left the kitchen that night. She did. And then the follow-up phone call is like protesting too much. Yeah. Like she's doing it to, you know, seemingly be concerned about the puppies. But, I mean, that's it. We know she did it. So she's certainly not proving her innocence there. If we've learned anything about Cruella DeVille, more than just being up to this point in the film, but in the 50 plus years since then... She's anything but subtle. Yes. (laughs) We know that she is anything but subtle whatsoever. Um, We get introduced to Jasper and Horace. They're really good comic relief, and it doesn't get old at all. Oh, they are probably the worst villains besides Marv and Harry. I had in my notes that they are the original (laughs) Marv and Harry. They are. I mean... In addition to the size and stature of them, they are such goons. They're terrible. And they use a fake job to infiltrate the home. They're worse, though. They're from the electric company, and they can't even remember to write the C in electric. Right. There's a little arrow pointing to where they forgot it. Yeah, whereas um, Harry goes into the McAllister house, and he's in full garb, pretending to be a police officer. Asking about what precautions they're taking when they're when they're away from home. Yeah, he's taking the mental notes. Can we just talk about Nanny for a second? Sure. She is such a little bad. I don't want to say the word, but she fights Horace and Jasper. She, you know, she doesn't let them invade the home. She's trying to push them back out the door, but then once they enter and start looking for the puppies. She's grabbing at them. She's chasing them. She's throwing things at them. Like she's not even trying to defend herself. She's just trying to get them back out of the home. And I mean, if this were now, nobody does that. Like you don't know what they've got on them. It's just kind of like, all right, take what you want and leave me alone. Oh, nanny was take no crap. Absolutely. Yeah. Good on her. Um, do you notice that when we get to the next scene with Cruella, when in that exact scene where she calls to foe check on the puppies, mm-hmm. she's got the red telephone. Did you ever notice that on the, I guess the hanger of the phone, if you make, if you look at the detail of the phone, it makes out the face of Satan. Yes. It's, it's perfect. It's subtle and it's quick, but... If you haven't seen the movie or if you haven't watched it in a while, I want you to go to that that scene specifically and look at that phone. Clearly, it's the devil. No, and it's not like a hidden Mickey or like a flash of something where you're not sure if you see. It's just a very, it's a smart detail that they included. And she's always smoking. In fact, I think she's smoking in bed in this scene. She absolutely, she's got her hair up in rollers and... It's like when you watch Ocean's Eleven nowadays and Brad Pitt's always eating. You never see a scene in this movie other than when she's driving 
where she isn't smoking a cigarette. I kind of love how they did that, though, where it's so stylized and it's green. Yeah. But it is that Disney villain green. We see it with Scar and Be Prepared. We see it... um... We saw it in The Black Cauldron, which which came later. Right. Um, But I think we also saw it in Sleeping Beauty, I think, when Maleficent turns into the dragon. Yes. You see it a lot there, actually. Yeah. Um, And the insults that Roger hurls at Cruella are great yeah but for the most part they're sort of backhanded and it's sort of like to himself where she can't necessarily hear him because when they have their confrontation where he tells her that he's not going to sell her the puppies he's very much intimidated by her his voice is quivering and he's not really standing there he's being as authoritative as he can be but you almost can't take him seriously right no he stutters a little you're right he stutters a lot (laughs) what's interesting though about that scene with the phone call is some of the dialogue though you know you're talking about roger hurling insults at her this is some of the most insulting dialogue really in disney film history i mean cruella uses almost every put down in the book she calls horace and jasper imbeciles repeatedly idiots idiot seems to be a very big word in this movie even anita calls roger an idiot roger calls pongo an idiot marv calls harry an idiot they it's constant in this movie it's it's probably like the rudest disney movie actually it yeah it's probably up to up to this point in time i would i would have to imagine um that when this movie came out I'm sure families thought, oh, we're going to take our children to see a wholesome movie about dogs. And you've got this chain-smoking gremlin (laughs) (laughs) calling everybody an idiot, and everybody's an idiot, and everybody's an idiot, and everybody's an imbecile, and we're going to skin dogs, and we're going to wear them. I have to imagine that there were some people that when this movie came out were probably a little upset. I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm just using the mind of somebody that, that is used to how things are nowadays. Maybe they weren't that insulted by it at the time but i'd almost find it hard to believe yeah i mean there's no cursing or anything in the film but i have to imagine if you're bringing a child you're kind of surprised to hear all the name calling and finger pointing yeah yeah um i love the twilight bark by the way yes i love the teamwork aspect of it all because Everybody can relate to this, whether you're a dog owner or not. You hear one dog in the neighborhood start, and then you hear the rest of them go. And you think they're just barking at each other. But in this movie, you live in a world where they're communicating and they're sending a message. It's so ingenious. That was one of my notes. I love that there's like this hidden network, and that's how they go about transmitting information. And one of the other things that I love so much about that scene is that you get almost all of the Lady and the Tramp characters on the Twilight Bark route. Yeah, they're kind of subtly placed in. Um, you have a return of uh, at least the actor that played Colonel Haffey. He's back in dog form playing another colonel. Talk about being typecast. Yeah, really. Um, and um, when they show the old DeVille estate where these dogs are being kept by Horace and Jasper, it's called Hell Hall. Oh, so there is a curse in this movie. Yeah, but it's Hell Hall. Yeah. And it yes, yes it most certainly is. There's no doubt about it. It it's a rundown old hole where they're going to do the, this awful thing to these poor puppies. That's the other thing. They're puppies. They are. No, and the way that they're drawn with those little faces and the eyes that look up at you. Like I cannot get through a meal 
without sharing some of it. Okay. Yeah. I can't get the look, the feed me look, that pathetic look without feeling so guilty and sharing my food with my dog. I cannot imagine having to go through something like this. But, you know, it's kind of interesting and I'm only realizing it as we're talking through this now is that you're talking about, you know, they're placing Satan on the phone or a likeness of the devil on the phone and her name is Cruella and it's called Hell Hall. They are demonizing Cruella, but she's not a witch. You know, it's not a sea witch like Ursula. It's not, it's not like an Maleficent. Evil it, yeah, she's not, but not, no, not an evil stepmother. That's not what I'm talking about. Because, like, the evil queen in Snow White, she was a stepmother and she had an evil motive. Right. What I'm talking about is Cruella is a real person, but they're giving her all of these demonic qualities and she doesn't use magic. She's just executing a horrible plan. Right. You can't even say that they're nuances. They're very deliberate. Right. But it's just interesting that they're giving her those qualities when she's a real person. Yes. As opposed to someone that possesses magic. And they're they're alluding that she is the devil. Although you'd have to be to do something like that to a puppy. Oh, no question about it. But it's just interesting that, um, you know, they allude to all of that when she doesn't have powers. Right. And I think up to this point in time, when it comes to a person, at least, it's a witch that poisons an apple. It's it's uh, an evil queen that can turn herself into a dragon. Right. You're right. This is not a person that possesses any sort of supernatural or superpower. She's just she's just pure evil. One of the first that we've seen up to this point in time that is that character. She's a horrible villain, but you know what? She is a strong character. Like, if we're talking about strong females, she is a powerful... I hate I, I hate to say it, but she's intelligent. She's got a plan, and she's executing it. And she's going to see it through. She's got, you know, two dimwits who are going to take the fall. She knows enough where it's... They, they're they good enough to get it done, and if they take the fall, she's going to hang these guys out to dry. Right, because she even says, and I don't know if you catch the line, when um, she goes back to Hell Hall and she sees that they haven't even gotten started yet, she's like, do it or I'm going to call the police. Yeah. Why would you do that to yourself? Right. You're going to out your whole plan, but she's ready to pin it on these guys. Right. She is a deliberate character, not just in her name, not just in her drawing and her setting, but deliberate in her motives. Yes. She's not at all, I said it before, she's not subtle in the very least. She knows exactly what she's going to do. She knows how she's going to do it. And she's got an out. She knows the end game, but she's got plan B, C, and D. Right. Um, We have talked on this show before about how we wonder if Disney could see into the future 50 years ago. Look no further than What's My Crime, (laughs) the trashy reality game show that clearly had taken the country by storm. That's a show that would actually exist and be a hit today. Yes, absolutely. It absolutely would. This was 1961 on release. Yeah. You're talking 1959, 1960 in development. And they saw this coming. Before 
Jersey Shore and the Kardashians. Yes, was, we had What's, what's my, my crime? crime? I mean, it was a spoof on What's My Line, which was an old game right. show. But um, what's interesting to me about that whole scene, too, is like the that and the Canine Crunchies commercial, whatever's up on the television looks like the more traditional Disney animation that we're used to seeing as opposed to the whole overall aesthetic of this film. Right. Um, I think that in all... All of the characters are hitting on all eight cylinders. I think Roger is a Roger is your stereotypical bachelor, mm-hmm. but he's kind of whimsical and he has fun and he doesn't take a lot of things too seriously other than his work. But given his work and his creative mind, sort of that happy go lucky and and have fun, it plays very well into what he does for a living because. I just can't see somebody that stern other than writing pieces for an orchestra not being whimsical and not being fun and not being a jokester. Right. And I love how that's brought out in his relationship with Anita. This is one of few films, I mean, aside because we've got like both spouses alive and well, that you actually see the physicality between them. You know, like he picks her up and he dances with her a little bit. And same thing, like Pongo and Purdy kind of cuddle. And we've never seen that really in Disney before other than like your magical kiss at the end. What I like so much about Roger and Anita... I guess because this is like the first time we're not seeing a prince and a princess is like they're just such a real couple. They're believable. Yes. And they're genuine and they're relatable. Right. We talked about it before. This movie was very modern, very contemporary in its time. Not just the story, not just the dialogue, not just the abstract animation, but also in these characters. The only thing that I find unrealistic about them is that if it were my dog, I would not be sitting by the phone. I would be out tearing the neighborhood apart until sure. I found my dog. Understood. And you've got 15. Yeah. Like, you know, they should be fairly easy to spot. Spot? Yeah. Ha-ha. Um, I, I think the ending of the film is is wonderful. I love how... Um, they cover themselves in soot to look like Labradors to escape. Um, and I, I, I love that when they come home, there's that, you know, there's that rejoice. It's Christmas time. It's mm. the Christmas miracle that they're all hoping for. And they decide that they're going to get a bigger house so that they can keep all of these dogs. I mean, isn't living with 101 dogs the dream? I was just going to say, like, how do you not? That's that's the gift is not only do you get your puppies back, but now they've multiplied. Yeah. You get 101 of them. I think um, unless you have anything else to add on the script or the plot, I think now's a good time to move on to the music. Uh, the only other thing that I wanted to hit on was that um, was the setting a little bit. And I don't mean in terms of. London. I mean, the time of year, like you just said, they got their puppies back at Christmas, which is like, you know, the perfect wrap up for everything. Um, But, you know, this takes place in the winter. And what's interesting to me is that they really played into the setting with this film because, you know, if it were me or if I saw two dogs out on the side of the road in a snowstorm braving the elements the way that Pongo and Purdy do, of course, your instinct is going to be to, you know, get them safe, get them warm. But 
it's like I said, it's a shift is that they're parents now and they have to go and they have to save their puppies and they get the puppies and then, you know, they're braving the elements, which is beautifully drawn, by the way. I don't know how they pulled off this this snowstorm. Admittedly, I've looked and I've not found the trick to make that blinding snow and the wind so realistic. Um, but what serves so well for the story is not that you just feel bad for the dogs, but like it creates so much heightened drama because now you've got the tracks and that's what is leading Cruella to to find them almost every time. Right. Can we talk just for a moment while we're discussing her going after them in the car? The car. Let's talk about the vehicles for a minute before we move on to the music. First of all, I love that car. Yeah. It's so snazzy and I think it fits her character so well because it's so stylized. It reminds me of um the Batmobile from the 1989 uh, Tim Burton Batman movie. Yeah. You know, it fits two people in the in the quote-unquote cabin, you know, for all intents and purposes. It's got that long front, totally stylized, round edges. That's what it looks like to me. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about not only, I mean, not only the details, but also how they animated this. Their, uh, her car and Jasper and Horace's van. Yeah, this was kind of mind-blowing to me. Um, it was something that I had always noticed as a kid, but like it's done so well, you kind of take it for granted, is you really get the motion of the car and it going up and down over the snowbanks. Hers a little bit, but she kind of zips around. It's clearly a fast car. But Horace and Jasper's jalopy truck that they're driving... You know, it looks really, really rickety. And I thought that somebody had like sat there and painstakingly drew that much the way that they did the Dalmatian spots. Right. But no, as it turns out, what they did was they actually had these model cars on a track and they filmed them sort of, I guess, in live action and then traced over them to make them look animated. Yeah. It's almost like um, like how South Park is done right. with the cardboard. Uh, they realized that with this new Xerox technology, because you're picking up on all those hard lines, um, you could kind of apply that to a model as long as you had those same thick lines. But now you're giving it more depth because it's in 3D as opposed to just drawing it. So they actually drove the model car and kind of like jiggled it along. And then instead of having to Xerox that first frame of a sketch from an animator, they just kind of traced over what they shot. And that's why at the end when uh, Horace and Jasper crash into Cruella and she goes up the snowbank, why that like dirty snow looks so realistic because they pushed the model into sand. And that's what you see kind of uh, caving down the hill. Not only is it a technical achievement, but we talked about it before. It was quicker and cheaper to do it this way because you're really just tracing over something that you've already filmed. And it was important for them to do that and to cut the corner, not cut corners, but to cut the cost where they could because... Um, uh, Sleeping Beauty was the film that had come out just before this and that movie had taken a bath 
that movie was so expensive and didn't make back what they had spent that believe it or not that was almost the last disney animated film ever made right and with dalmatians you know they knew it was going to be a huge undertaking to draw all of them and they did speed things up with the xerox but it still took five years right so you really had to figure out every way you could to limit the the manpower limit the time it took to make these movies and and save on the cost and this was just another another way that they made it happen um but i think now we can move on and talk about the music there's not a ton of songs here um the first song is cruella Deville, um which is a perfect song yeah i i, don't, I haven't said that a lot about a lot of music on this show but i think that this is a perfect song. Number one, it's an earworm. Yes. Number two, it's just fun. It's a lot of fun. But thirdly, and most importantly, is that it sums her up completely. It's on the nose, but you you almost don't mind. Yeah. Just because it's so good, you know the it's a catchy song, like you said. Uh, the rhymes are really clever. Um, and I, I just love that like Roger kind of unabashedly hates her. Yeah. I mean, he's playing the song while she's in the living room and he's upstairs. She heard it. Yeah. There's no way she didn't hear that. And it has become one of the most iconic Disney songs of all time. Yeah. Cause that you still hear in the parks you know maybe not full out with the words but you certainly hear the the melody yeah i uh, that blues melody i mm. love it uh, yeah that worked really well for the film it's not what i normally think of when i think of uh, you know music that comes from london like I, i'm thinking more like brit pop or like the clash and the beatles and things like that I don't think blues, but it works so well for this film. Right, and and I mean, this movie predates even the Beatles. Yeah, but that's true. But you're right; it's not what you would have thought uh, would have come out of Britain. Um, and Canine Crunchies is the next song, which is just a cute little commercial. Jingle, it's yeah. a jingle on TV, but they said it was it was made to qu- kind of spoof what was already on television. I still count it as a song because if we're going by the criteria of being, you know, clever and catchy, like, yeah, that's it. That's that's my earworm is th- that's what got stuck in my head the most. Is Interesting. Um, and the third song and final song is Dalmatian Plantation. It's short, but it's very clever in its lyrics. I kind of wish they let it play out with another verse or so. Like play out over the well, I don't think there were credits. I think it just said the end and the movie was over. Yeah, because where you get the credits is the opening, which is really impressive. That the title opening. sequence is unbelievable. It's insane. And that music is really good too. This There's no mu- words, but like it's it's catchy. It's good music. This film had a really good score. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really good. I very much underrated because I think when people consider the music of this film they just default to Cruella de Vil and that's about it mm-hmm. now a lot of that is because it's not a Mary Poppins it's not a Snow White it's not a Jungle Book where you have all of these songs or even a, a Little Mermaid 
songs that you can just pull one after another and ramble them off. I mean, we just talked about it. There's only three of them. Right. So this relies so much in terms of, of song. This relies so much on the score more so than anything else. And I think they accomplish their goal of, of creating drama and suspense with the music. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, I think that this movie, in in spite of the abstract art that was very modern for the time, in spite of the uh, subject matter... I think that this movie without question holds up to a modern audience. Yeah, especially, you know, I think that that's why they redid it. And that's kind of why we chose to do this film, because, you know, we're in the era of all these sequels and remakes of the classics. And when you think about it, this was really the first one to get the live action treatment. I don't think that back in the 90s, when they did decide to do it live action, that they could have ever anticipated that eventually they were going to do the whole catalog over almost. Right. Um, But this just made so much sense to do because of how difficult it must have been to draw all of them. Um, But to put that modern twist on it is, you know, and we're going to talk about this of course next week uh, when we review the live action film, but you know, what makes it hold up is that Cruella DeVille is about to do something horrible and they've modernized it by putting Anita in the fashion world. Right. Um, which to me actually makes more sense than, than the schoolmate, than thing. the schoolmate thing. Um, and we'll get into that and we'll cut into that more next week. But to answer the question of does it hold up in that regard? No, because we've seen it done better. Um, Everything else, though, I think the music and especially Cruella, like, yeah, we're still talking about her. Well, I mean, not only are we still talking about her from this movie, we're going to be talking about her an awful lot more in the next couple of years because they're giving her a solo film. And it sounds like the rumor is, um, and everything you read on the Internet is true, um, it sounds like Emma Stone is going to be Cruella DeVille. I think she's very interesting casting. I like Emma Stone. I think she's a hell of an actress. But I don't necessarily know how she's going to pull this off. If it's in fact her, I don't know if her casting is going to be correct. Um, I think it is in the sense of, you know, and again, this does tie into does this hold up or not. Um, she's obviously, you know, Cruella's got that black and white hair, but it almost seems like it's graying out not like you see people now with like two-tone hair because they've dyed it like that um so and you know i have to assume that she's not going to look like a corpse so i think that it's a smart choice because they're making her younger and that's definitely more believable that she went to school with anita um, and I'm, I have to imagine if if this is her story, we're going to maybe see some of those school days if they decide to keep it true to the original. Um, so in that regard, I think it's a great choice. Do I think that Emma Stone can be that diabolical? I don't know. I think she's an insanely talented actress. She is one of my favorites, but she's very cute. You know, she's cute looking. And... She's funny. We've seen her do con- like I I love her in Zombieland. That's probably I mean before she's done all of these films that she's gotten Academy Award nominations for. 
Zombieland was probably my favorite Emma Stone role. Right. I think a lot of people forget that she got her big break in Superbad. Right. But even that, that was comedy. And she was sarcastic in both of them. I don't think that we've seen her go full on mean. Like uh, Birdman, when she was opposite Michael Keaton. Um, she was obnoxious, but she yeah, wasn't Yeah, but not mean. mean. Exactly. Um, so she's going to have to uh, like really dig deep to pull this off, I think. I mean, I guess if there's any actress that can do it, I mean, she's as good as any. But that's kind of where my hope hinges on this. This is either going to be, this is either going to be casting where when we look back on it, we're going to say, oh my God, this made the most sense in the world, a la Angelina Jolie as Maleficent. Right. Or it's going to be Emma Watson as Belle. Right. That's that I I there's to me there's no middle ground with this character. I think that this character is so specific in her motives. I think she is so specific in her demeanor that it's feast or famine when it comes to Cruella Deville. I mean, look, it doesn't take much to scream the puppies the puppies. I do it every single day when I'm walking him in the village and I see another puppy that I want to take home with me. From me, it's a little bit different, though, than Cruella. So yeah. to pull that off is going to be a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. I think she's got the talent. I've just not seen anything in her track record where I think Emma Stone is going to be as believable as we need her to be. I would agree with that. That's going to do it for us and this review this week. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, We look forward to coming back next week to talk about the 1996 live action remake of this uh, film starring Glenn Close. Um, Before we go, let's not forget we got a couple of things to hit on first. Thank you to our sponsor over at Amazon.com. Make sure you check out www.monorealradio.wixsite.com slash home where you get links to the Amazon Instant Videos for every film that we review on Monoreal Radio. Also, we have a contest going on right now. We have one more week left on the contest. It's to win a copy of The Finest Hours uh, starring Chris Pine. It is a Disney film starring Chris Pine on Blu-ray and digital HD um, tying into our Into the Woods uh, review that we did last week with John Sicari, the Big Fat Panda. Um, It's that packaged with some wonderful... Disney Park maps and Disneyland stickers that we got from Average Joe Orlando, a good friend of the show. Uh, That contest is going to go until 11.59 p.m. on Sunday, January 20th, 2019. Uh, Like and uh, share and comment on the posts. You get one entry each. If you subscribe to the podcast, if you rate the podcast, five entries on those. That, That contest going for another week. And if you win those park maps, you can use them when you book a vacation with me. You can book with me through Magical Vacation Planner. Just hit me up either through our social media on Monoreal Radio or directly to my email address, which is j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.